Good morning. Welcome to all of you. Welcome to all those on live stream, our students in McKenna Chapel, and all over the world who are watching this service. It's great to be here. I even went by to see Henry Clay Morrison today. Well, he was in the grave, but I saw him anyway, and I did say, we made it. <laughs> it is great to be here. A desert road leading to Damascus. A quiet garden in the city of Milan. A stormy day in Stadterheim, Germany. Three women conversing in a doorway in Bedford, England. A Moravian prayer meeting in a street called Aldersgate in London. A motorcycle sidecar on its way to an Oxford Zoo. And a runaway horse in Perryville, Kentucky. What do these places all have in common? These are just a few examples of moments and places which have changed lives and set forth new and fruitful trajectories in the grand unfolding story of redemption in Jesus Christ. St. Paul, in the early 30s, at the dawn of the Christian era, filled with murderous threats against the church, was on the road to Damascus to arrest Christians and to find himself only to be arrested by Jesus Christ, to become his bond slave and to give his life releasing captives, and a new chapter in the church was born. Augustine, brilliant in rhetoric but beset with immorality, was set alone weeping in a backyard garden in Milan on April 24th, 386. Quite unexpectedly, he heard the voice of children, tole lege, tole lege, pick up and read, pick up and read. And he picked up and opened up the, the Bible to Romans 16, and he was gloriously converted, and a new chapter in the church began. Martin Luther, on July 2nd, 1505, was traveling to Erfurt, and as he approached the town of Stadernheim in Germany, he was caught in a massive lightning storm. And a bolt of lightning struck so close to him that it knocked him down. And he cried out, St. Anne, help me, I'll become a monk. <laughs> How about that for a spontaneous prayer? St. <laughs> Anne, help me, I'll become a monk. And that led him to the Augustinian Monastery in Wittenberg and the rediscovery of the gospel as he studied Paul's epistle to the Romans. Luther was excommunicated by the church, but the gospel could not be excommunicated. And a new chapter was unleashed in the world, and we've never been the same. John Bunyan was walking through the streets of Bedford, England in 1655, and he happened to hear three women conversing in the, their doorway about their faith in Christ and how they had been converted. And he later wrote in the, that on the streets of Bedford, after hearing those women speak, his heart was pricked, and he received Christ into his life. And by 1670, Bunyan was arrested for unauthorized lay preaching and spent 12 years in prison. And it was there that he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, which became one of the most 
influential Christian books in the history of the world. And the redemption story unfolds. John Wesley, on May 24th, 1738, went unwillingly. I love that. Students, don't forget it. <laughs> he went unwillingly down to Aldersgate to a Moravian prayer meeting. And while there, he heard someone read Martin Luther's preface to the book of Romans. Don't you love how these stories all link? He heard them read Luther's preface to the book of Romans. And he said right then, his heart was strangely warmed. And of course, from that moment, the whole world was set on fire. And we have not been the same since. Of course, Wesley was eventually banned from preaching in every pulpit in England. But the vibrancy of the gospel cannot be banned. And a new chapter was born. C.S. Lewis was deeply moved by a conversation he had with J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings. And he was deeply struck by the fact that as Tolkien had explained to him, Christianity actually is the story that explains all the other stories. And, Luther, and, and, and Lewis, as he was reflecting on this on September 28, 1931, he was on his way to the Oxford Zoo in a motorcycle sidecar. And by his own words, Lewis wrote, I left for the zoo an unbeliever. And by the time I arrived, I was a fully convinced Christian. <laughs> Hallelujah. That's what I call a zoo ride. Every seminary has a story. And our story is as powerful and transformative as any of these stories we've recounted. Our story would not have been possible without these stories which have preceded it. And today, we officially begin this celebration of our centennial. A hundred years. I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional. We've been waiting for this for 13 years, haven't we, Jay? A hundred years of training ministers for the gospel and spreading scriptural holiness throughout the world. Amen? Amen. Which brings me to the runaway horse in Perryville, Kentucky. Our story begins not in 1923, but actually back in 1877 when a 19-year-old boy named Henry Clay Morrison found himself on the back of a runaway horse in Perryville, Kentucky. In the crisis of what it seemed like the end of his young life, at that crisis moment, he gave himself fully to Christ. Now, we talk about crisis moments. That was his crisis moment on the back of a runaway horse. He had come down, to, he had responded to a prayer meeting, uh, a revival at age 13, but it was by his account, it was the runaway horse which really transformed his life and completely brought him to full-time ministry. And of course, this story should rank up there with all these other, some of these more well-known stories because our history is linked to the life and history of Henry Clay Morrison, our beloved founder. When Morrison came to Christ in that moment, he eventually led him to Vanderbilt University, where he got his training, and he graduated. And even early on, it was clear that Morrison was a very gifted preacher and speaker. When he graduated in May, in those, in those days, the appointments were not until September, he graduated from Vanderbilt in May, and between May and September, when he began his first appointment, he preached 106 times and led 215 people to Christ. 
This is before he even began the ministry. He soon became a sought-after camping preacher, and that kind of thought his life. In 1885, when he was 28 years old, just curious, anybody here 28 years old? I see that hand. Okay, I see a few hands. There we go. When he was 28 years old, just the, the, this young man and young woman, he made his first trip to Wilmore, Kentucky. He preached revival here in the Methodist Church, and it was on those days they called it a protracted meeting, which meant, I love this, unlike today where everything is so scripted, it meant we just keep on preaching and going on until people, as long as people come to Christ. They had these protracted meeting here in Wilmore, and it was here in Wilmore they had his first big breakthrough. 104 people came to Christ in Wilmore, Kentucky. And this city was profoundly changed. There were only 105 people in Wilmore at that time. <laughs> but it was there that he met John Wesley Hughes, who, of course, would let someday uh, start the university across the street. But Wesley sh shared with him his vision. He was five years senior to um, uh, Morrison. His vision is someday start a holiness college somewhere in Kentucky. And Henry Ed Clyde Morrison went on to pastor a church in Covington, Kentucky. It was in Covington that Horace Cockrell, remember this also, students, because someday you will help mentor others who are coming through. And Horace Cockrell gave him a copy of John Wesley's A Plain Account of Christian Perfection. Everybody should read it. And that book really changed his life. Because he then realized for the first time what the word salvation meant. He'd been preaching justification. Now he preached both sides of the gospel, also sanctification. And his preaching was dramatically changed beyond that. He eventually got a prestigious appointment in, a, in the capital city of Frankfurt. And he became the chaplain to all the politicians uh, in Frankfurt. And by 1890, he was being nominated to be a bishop. Well, at that point, he had a crisis in his life because he saw that trajectory. And he made a very shocking decision that he would resign from not only being considered for a bishop, but also he resigned from the local pastorate. And he became a full-time traveling evangelist. Now, that was a big, big step for him. And we could never, if we could survey his uh, revival campaigns, it would take us all day long. But since lunch is coming, we'll keep this moving. And I must, I must remember the revival in Winchester, Kentucky where 150 people came to Christ. And he was amazed because those, those meetings resulted, in addition to the people who came to Christ, $38,000 being raised to start Kentucky Wesleyan College in Millersburg, Kentucky, later moved to Owensboro. It was also the Winchester Revival, which led 100 of the men who had come to Christ to those meetings, pay up a collection and give H.C. Morrison his traveling pocket watch, which he used the rest of his life, which I have with me here today. This is passed down uh, to every president uh, of Asbury Seminary. It's housed in our alumni center. And this uh, is to remind us, as the leaders of this seminary, that we are in a kairos time. The kairos is the Greek word for sacred redemptive time, not just clock time, but kairos time. This is a kairos moment for all of us. Well, meanwhile, John Wesley Hughes was working to start a holiness college here in Kentucky, and the Methodist bishops of his day adamantly opposed him starting any new venture like that. 
Eventually, uh, Hughes said the only way to move forward was that he had to give up his credentials. He resigned his credentials in the Methodist Church. He started the college as a layperson because by that point, Vanderbilt was drifting away from orthodoxy. Uh, so eventually, after he lost his orthodoxy, someone uh, lost his, I'm sorry, lost his, orthodoxy, lost his ordination, someone asked him about uh, why he would start the college without the support of the local leaders. And this is what he said, and I quote, this is the founder across the street. What is more important, that a college is authorized by a Methodist conference or that it teaches Methodist doctrine? Can I get a witness? <laughs> Wilmore had been so transformed by the gospel in those revival meetings five years earlier that he actually challenged the citizens of Wilmore. He said, if you can raise $1,600 in one week, I'll start the college there. And that's how it got started uh, here in Wilmore. Now, before we really get to this point of why they were attracted here, a little bit of a side point, because Asbury College was started on a centennial. It was founded on the centennial of the work of, the, of Francis Asbury establishing Bethel Academy in the year 1790. If you know American history, you'll of course know that on 6th Street and Liberty Avenue in, uh, in Philadelphia in 1775, we had our Second Continental Congress. This was the most important Congress in the founding of America. It was the Congress that declared war on England. It was the Congress that ratified the Declaration of Independence. It was the Congress that appointed George Washington to be the head of the Continental Army. What is not as known is just two blocks down at the same exact time, Francis Asbury was meeting with Thomas Rankin and Robert Strawbridge and other leaders of the Methodist movement to strategize how to bring the gospel to the frontiers of America, which in those days was Kentucky. And so they brought a, a, a movement to come out here and start a place on the frontier to train ministers of the gospel. And they came out here not too far from Handy Bend's Road, not too far from this point, and they founded uh, Bethel Academy. And I have right here uh, one of the original bricks from Bethel Academy, which also passed down through the president's office. Uh, it lasted just about 10 years before it uh, lost because of lack of funding, but a lot of important ministers were trained there in those early days. And so, uh, Wesley, uh, Don Wesley Hughes came here. Uh, they purchased uh, four acres of land actually up on Main Street today near the Methodist Church, and they again established uh, Asbury uh, College. They called it after the centennial of Asbury's founded Bethel Academy. Now, that, those buildings over here were very important. That went on for some time. But you should also know that in 1908, the entire of Asbury College burned to the ground. These were white clapboard buildings. What you may not know is that on the night that Asbury College burned to the ground, Henry Clay Morrison was on his way in a train to come to Scott Station in Wilmore to meet with John Wesley Hughes, his good friend. And as Morrison traveled on the train, he fell asleep, as we often do on trains, and he had a dream. And he dreamed of Asbury College. And what he dreamed was not what was there, which was white clapboard building. He dreamed of brick buildings with big white columns. He pulls into Scott Station here in Wilmore in the early wee hours of the morning, and he was told, Dr. Morrison, uh, last night uh, Asbury College burned to the ground. It's at that point that the college um, 
purchased the land across the street here, where they are now, and they rebuilt uh, the college. By the way, they also built it on a foundation stone uh, taken from Bethel Academy to this location. So it's important to see that twice Morrison saw revivals result in the formation of higher education in centers, the founder of Asbury College and earlier Kentucky Wesleyan College. Now, the founder of all of these schools that took place at that time, not only here but across the country, was the cause of profound changes and upheaval taking place in the country at that time. The last two decades, the 19th century, and the first two decades of the 20th century, witnessed a dramatic and sweeping change in the theological climate of North America. Morrison's life and ministry coincides with these movements of mainline Christianity embracing progressive versions of Christianity which denied the authority of the Bible, downgraded their Christology, and lost their evangelistic mandate. So meanwhile, as a full-time evangelist, Marshall is preaching, uh, reminding people of the historic gospel. That's really what frames his ministry in life. By the fall of 1888, he fell into a stage of holy discontent. There was just too many things happening, and he could not stop at all. And so this is 35 years before he started the seminary. He was holding revival service in Maysville, Kentucky. And he fell into a discontent, and he wrote these words in his diary, which I want to quote to you. These are really important words. He says, I felt if I had the power to multiply my life into a score of men or women, I could make every one of them an earnest preacher of the gospel. Now that was his Matthew 9, 37 moment. It was read earlier. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Therefore pray to the Lord of harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And that's what led him to found what he called the Old Methodist, later the Pentecostal Herald. And that was his magazine, which just absolutely trumpeted out the mess of holiness. And that created a huge network of supporters for this institution, of course, across the street uh, uh, at the time of this publication. The first issue came out the press, December 14th, 1888. The next turn point came from his life in July of 1897. Now, Morrison was asked to go to Dublin, Texas. I know we have Texans here. <laughs> Dublin, Texas, southwest of Dallas, if you're not familiar with Texas geography, which is a requirement for Asbury Seminary. You have to know your Texas geography. He was called to come to Dublin, Texas and, by lay people and do a revival out in an open park. Now, at the time uh, when he was uh, asked to do this, Reverend Ida Smith, the presiding elder, they called him presiding elders in those days, what we call bishops today, opposed him coming to Texas to preach the radical message of holiness in Texas. Texas aren't against holiness, but just those people were. It claimed, told him that if he came down there and preached, they'd bring charges against him and his ordination would be stripped away. Now, it raised the question whether someone could go down to another state and preach anywhere in the country, actually, without the approval of the presiding bishop. Now, Morrison struggled over this a lot, but he reminded himself, he said, you know, I'm invited by lay people, no clergy were involved at all, and two, I'm, we're preaching in an outdoor park. And so after much back and forth about this in his mind, he decided, and I love what he said in his diary, he said, a private in the army has the right to disobey a captain if he has a higher order from a colonel. 
And then I love, I love this understatement of, of, of Morrison. He says, and I quote, it must not be forgotten that God still has some authority in the universe. <laughs> so on September 4th, 1897, Morrison goes to Dublin, Texas to preach the gospel. He got there, the revival tents, of course they used tents in those days, were so packed that the clouds were already overflowing outside. But the E.A. Smith, the Reverend E.A. Smith, met him and told him to go back to Kentucky. Morrison politely refused. And so four days later, while he was still conducting revival services in, uh, in, in Texas, he received written notice to Dr. Smith that his ordination in the Methodist Episcopal Church South had been terminated. The charges then eventually came before the Kentucky Conference and uh, Hill Street Methodist Church, today First UMC, at that time, they held up the charges, and Morrison was banned from preaching in every Methodist church south in the country. So Morrison gave his ordination at that point, and he started getting invitations to preach in Baptist churches, <laughs> Presbyterian churches, and on he went. He kept going. Amazingly, this crisis actually dramatically broadened Morrison's sphere of influence, in fact, the lady was so supportive of Morrison in the wake of this ordination being taken away that the subscription rates of the Pentecostal Herald soared. Morrison, in one of his journal notes, said that in one day after this happened, he received 400 new subscriptions in one day. It was actually dramatically changing his life and ministry because of this crisis. But also, just to finish the story, a very faithful minister in Kentucky fought strongly for his reinstatement in some time later, and his name was W.E. Arnold. Now, I still believe, where's Bill? Bill? He's got it related to you. We've been discussing this, but because uh, Bill has long roots in Kentucky Methodism, but W.E. Arnold, I'm sure Bill Arnold's uh, uh, distant cousin or whatever, he fought and got his ordination restored, and uh, Morrison became fully instated and, of course, had a great relationship with the conference ever since. They had five times elected a delegate to the general conference. But he was reinstated because of the power of his life, the authenticity of his life, the fruit of his ministry. You couldn't deny it. And so he was welcomed back into the church. In 1905, the country went into a depression. It wasn't the Great Depression, which would come later, but for the next five years, Asbury College went through some very serious decline between 1905 and 1910. They went through four presidents in five years. And those leaders were not well suited for the challenge of that job. And Asbury College fell into an enrollment crisis, an institutional crisis. The enrollment dropped from 400 students down to 50 students. And the faculty were beginning to scatter and look for other places to teach. The trustees asked John Wesley Hughes to come back. He, of course, retired and after 15 years of service, but he was starting another school. He was in deep retirement, another school down in the part of Kentucky, another part of the country, and he refused. So in 1910, when the school was only 20 years old, the trustees of Asbury College met, and they formally took a vote and decided to shut down Asbury College. But at the vote, one of the trustees, and we have two trustees here, a wise trustee had a bold idea. This is A.P. Jones, by the way, was the trustee. What would happen if we could convince 
the great evangelist Henry Clay Morrison to leave aside his evangelistic ministry and to become the president of Asbury College. We might could save this thing. So they amended the vote and agreed they would not close the college if H.C. Morris agreed to come as the president. If he said no, they would close the college. Well, Morris had just got back from a global tour. He'd been in China and in India. He came back. He was sick. He was way behind in the Pentecostal Herald work that he needed to be doing. And he had on his desk stacks of invitations to preach the gospel all over this country. And he was visited by this trustee who said to him, God, we have a wonderful plan for your life, <laughs> and God has called you, we believe, to be the president of Asbury College. Well, this evan a traveling evangelist, think about it, to become the president of a college. But he prayed about it, and at 2 o'clock in the morning as they prayed, God said to him, this is my call for you. And H.C. Morrison became the president of Asbury College, which was a dramatic and important moment. At this point... Uh, the ministry of the school uh, began to flourish again. By the way, the network of uh, the Pentecostal Herald, they sold these $1 uh, bonds or prescriptions, whatever, and people put those in, and the result was the college was saved. But the march of theological liberalism continued throughout the country, and he was deeply disturbed. I want to quote you what he wrote in the Pentecostal Herald at this time. Quote, One is astounded at the number of schools, at the very fountainheads of our intellectual religious life that are becoming poisoned with skeptical teaching, and the number of ministers that are boldly speaking out against the very foundational principles of divinely revealed religion. Shall we sit still? Shall we let false teachers sow in our schools, from our pulpits, and through our literature, teachings contrary to the Word of God and Christian creeds? Now, this shall we still was directed at so many ministers who were silent when all this was going on and destroying the churches in America. Well, Morrison finally came to the conclusion it was not enough to start Christian colleges in America. We needed a new seminary, one that was committed to historic orthodoxy and fully imbued with the great Wesleyan message. And this is the seed which led to the founding of Asbury Theological Seminary. Every seminary has a story, and this is our story. He sold, again, $1 bonds through the work of Pentecostal Herald, constructed a building to house a graduate school of theology. And I want the faculty to hear this. This is what he did. He went out and recruited the following faculty. He recruited G.W. Rideout from Taylor University to teach theology. I mean, sorry, to teach uh, apologetics. Fred Larrabee to teach New Testament. Frank Paul Morris to teach systematic theology. Wilder Reynolds to teach church history. Walter Harris to teach missions. Lewis Akers to teach Old Testament. And Daisy Gray, our founding female professor, to teach homiletics. The core faculty was now prepared. It's astonishing to think that to start a seminary, you had to have a faculty larger than the student body. We had seven faculty and three students. <laughs> and he's had the courage to have the motto, the whole Bible for the whole world. I would have made it the whole Bible for Kentucky. <laughs> that was the vision of our founder. This is what eventually led us to the dawning of our moment. I love the fact that in his diary, he writes these words, the devil thought he had us beat, but God rebuked him and gave us the victory. 
And of course, he got a, a letter so amazing, the timing of it, a letter that arrived the month we were founded. This is the month he started this venture. It said this to him, Episcopal leader. He said, do not start this school. You cannot survive, and your school cannot succeed. Brothers and sisters, here we are. <laughs> Hallelujah. Here we are. A hundred years later, we not only survived and succeeded, but we have prospered under the providential hand of God. Asbury Seminary is more vibrant today than any time in our history, and we're not going anywhere. A hundred years later, we still believe in the whole Bible for the whole world. A hundred years later, we still believe in the fully sanctified life and Trinitarian salvation. A hundred years later, we still believe that God's work done in God's way will not lack God's supply. A hundred years later, we still believe in evangelism to a lost world. A hundred years later, we still believe in the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A hundred years later, we still believe in biblical orthodoxy and apostolic witness. A hundred years later, we still believe in spreading scriptural holiness throughout the world. Amen? Amen? And so today, I thank God that the risen Lord Jesus Christ appeared to St. Paul on the road to Damascus. I thank God for those children who were playing across the fence that day in Milan. I thank God for that lightning storm in Stotterheim, Germany, on July 2nd, 1505. I thank God for those women conversing in their, in their doorway that day and sharing their faith. I thank God for the Moravians who decided to hold that prayer meeting on May 24, 1738. I thank God that J.R.R. Tolkien shared his faith with C.S. Lewis. Wow. Those are great stories. I love church history. Those are great stories. But today, today, we're mostly thankful for a runaway horse in Kentucky. And we've been running ever since. Thanks be to God. Amen. <laughs>